Good afternoon. Pranhaun Dar, everyone, and welcome to today's event. We are delighted to be hearing from Jonathan Porritt, writer, broadcaster, and commenter on, commentator on sustainable development about his views on climate action that must be taken in the next decade. Jonathan is well known and well loved as a prominent campaigner over many years. He is co-founder of the Forum for the Future and received a CBE in the year 2000 for his services to environmental protection. Welcome Jonathan and thank you very much for joining us today. Interviewing Jonathan will be doc Dr. Stuart Capstick, who is Deputy Director of the Centre for Climate Change and Social Transformation, CAST, here at Cardiff University. <clears throat> in his research, Stuart is interested in how people understand and act on climate change, and he looks at how to involve people in creating a better, low-carbon society. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you, Stuart, for joining us, and over to you, Stuart. Thanks. Thank you very much, uh, Karen, and I'd like to extend my welcome to Jonathan um, as well. Um, so let's get started. Um, uh, when we uh, talked about how to sort of structure and describe this event, we, we talked to you, Jonathan, about um, how we wanted to, to title it. Uh, and you suggested we call it uh, the next decade rebooting humankind's future. Uh, now, that really does not sound like a small thing. Uh, why, why do we need to reboot humankind's future? Can't we just carry on roughly as we are but with some you know green solutions here and there to make sure we don't cross into dangerous territory no Stuart, we absolutely can't just carry on tweaking the system optimizing the system if you like to make it perform somewhat better we're way way past that point and i think that's the most important thing to emphasize with any audience whether you're talking about civil society organizations, education, business, whatever it might be, that we're now already in very dangerous territory indeed. We have left it so late that we absolutely can't rely on the old systems, the old institutions, the old policy settings, old practices, behavioral norms. We have to reboot. We pretty much have to rewrite the rules of how we're going to live together and turn things around over the course of the next decade. And that's the point. It's a decadal story we've got to sort out so much by 2030 if we want to get to this much better place by 2050 and those are the two time frames that people are dealing with really what happens now in the next decade and then what we still need to achieve by 2050 which is where uh, all the big targets for reducing emission of greenhouse gases biodiversity dealing with equality all of those targets then have to be addressed Thank you. Yes, so very much not a, a small um, issue <laughs> to be dealing with. No, um, not small. no. <laughs> I, I mean, some features. Could you um, sort of articulate what you think some of the features of that reboot might look like, and and, and ideally how we might how we might um, go about doing that? The problem we have really is that we've had a a model of economic development of growth, if you like, that goes back 40, 50 years. And much of what has been delivered during that time, which has been hugely beneficial to, you know, hundreds of millions, billions of people. You, we can't forget the fact that a very large number of people live much better lives now than they did because of that model of growth. But that model of growth has caused huge damage to the natural world and indeed considerable continuing damage to the lives of many, many people on the planet today. So. That's what we've got to look at. We've got to look at the mechanisms that we rely on 
to change that economic order, the paradigm, if you like, of economic development. That then translates through, cascades through into lots of different policy areas, whether it's climate, biodiversity, uh, inequalities, specific things like housing, planning, all of this kind of stuff. So it's pretty comprehensive. We'll come on and talk about this, I'm sure, but there's no part of our lives that isn't going to be subject to the need for a quite a radical rethink in order to get us to that point. And then you've got to get on to the whole area about how individuals in different societies accommodate to that new reality and the ways in which we can make that easier for people so that it doesn't become a, a massive sort of dislocation in the lives of, um, of people today. So do you think, I mean, thinking about the, the fundamentals of our society and our economy, do we need to reconsider our growth-based economy, capitalism itself? Can we, can we still have a recognisable, um, you know, economy in the ways we do now, or does it need to be reconfigured entirely? Well, we, we have to have a recognisable economy, actually, Stuart. That's, that is our, that's our reality, like it or not. We have to move so fast now that when I hear people say that we need to get rid of capitalism and we need a completely different economic order for the world. And I think, well, you may or may not be right. That's uh, another debate. But frankly, the idea of, as it were, overthrowing capitalism before we do what needs to be done to deal with today's interlocking crises is frankly bonkers. It's just not going to happen. So we more or less have to do what we need to do within a system based essentially on markets, on having a market based system of wealth creation, where individuals feel empowered to make the most of their own potential within that economic paradigm, and where governments intervene to shape the rules of the market, so as to ensure that we don't end up in a even worse place than we're in today. That's that's what people call realpolitik. And, and it sometimes worries me that there's a story going on that says, oh, the system will never be able to sort all of that. We need a completely new system. Well, we might, but honestly, we've got to work with what we've got. And that means we have to rethink every single aspect of that system and temper it, change it, um, transform it in some of its key characteristics. For instance, the pursuit of property, uh, property. Um, and profit and all of those things. And we have to rethink the, the basics, which will allow that essentially market-based capitalist system to work in a completely transformed way. Okay, thank you. That's a, that's a really um, insightful answer. Um, I wanted to ask a bit about um, your, your kind of background and your work over the years. So you've, you've been involved in green politics, campaigning, engagement across civil society for, for many years now. Um, and it, there must have been times, um, not least now, when it, it can be very painful uh, to live in a time of what we know to be collapsing ecosystems and unfolding climate emergency. Um, many people around the world are, are experiencing real harm and, and many of us who sort of work in this field uh, experience real sort of grief and, and distress at, at what's happening. Um, what's the most important thing you've learned over the years in, in terms of um, dealing with that, shall we say? And, and, and why is it you've, you've recently written a book about hope rather than um, despair <laughs> or grief? Uh, yeah. 
I seriously hope I never have to write a book about despair, Stuart. That would be um, a bit of a nightmare. Funny enough, I've just spent um, the last three or four weeks uh, um, going back through my Green Party archive. So I joined the Green Party in 1974 and was very active in the Green Party through to 1984 when I went to Friends of the Earth. And so I had these boxes stuck in our basement. And, I, and I've obviously taken advantage of the somewhat different working conditions during lockdown to have a look in those. And it is, it's sort of remarkable and a bit depressing, I have to admit, to go back to some of the discussions, debates, the policy documents, the manifestos that the Green Party was coming up with through the 70s and 80s, and to realize how little, how little has actually um, been done to put those pretty sensible ideas into practice, to be honest. Now, I don't want to overdo that because actually in the last five or six years, things are moving at a different pace now. And for those who say that there's never any difference and things always move so slowly, it's never gonna make any difference. That's not true. There has been a real quickening in the pulse of our responses to these interlocking crises, whether it's about the natural world and biodiversity or about climate change. I haven't seen a quickening of the pulse in terms of a response to inequality and grotesque levels of injustice in the world. In some respects, that's not moving at all. But I suppose I've been fortunate, yeah, none of, I haven't had reason to give up on the ideas which will underpin a better world for people. I haven't had any cause, if you like, to decide that it's too late, so I might as well go off and do something completely different. I don't think it's too late. I think we've still got time. And I imagine that's a big debate for you, Stuart, and your colleagues in CAST. More and more people are kind of coming to the conclusion that it may be too late, which is a really difficult basis on which to take forward whatever initiative, educational or practical activist initiative that we're involved in. So, so far I've been lucky. I haven't, I haven't had cause, as it were, to say, that's it, I've done with this, it ain't gonna work, and um, I'm off to do something completely different. I don't know what that would be anyway. I think I'm a one-trick pony by this stage in my life. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And, and I think that it is a risk um, as we become increasingly aware of the, the urgent nature of this and, yeah. and see see some see some parts of the natural world that really do look like they're collapsing you know particularly warm water coral reefs um are, are in serious peril if we move beyond two degrees c um there is i, I think along with the recognition that is growing uh, among the wider public about the urgency of this a, a risk of um, feeling that things could be too late and that, that you know we, we throw up our hands in despair yeah. so um i think that that's important there I, I, and you know ha, what part do you think hope plays in that i mean what does hope mean to you and I, I, how is that different from being optimistic shall we say yeah no it, that, it is important to stress the difference between those two things i do not describe myself as an optimist um i i do not completely subscribe to the idea that things are working in the right direction, that we've got this all sorted, because it, there's no grounds for believing that, frankly. There are so many powerful forces of destruction in the world today, and so many headwinds that we're still working into, as it were, that to describe oneself as an optimist means you're not looking at the world as it is, frankly. But I do describe myself as someone who's hopeful about the opportunity we still have to change that all around. And I'm not a pessimist either. I'm 
spent most of my life working with people in different organizations for whom those essential characteristics of, of um, fortitude, of passion for the natural world, of compassion for other people have shaped their lives. And it's a remarkable privilege to work in a movement, in a world where the vast majority of people are dedicated to making things better for others and for the whole of life on earth. It's in a way, pessimism and despair are kind of self-indulgent in that regard because we, we don't have a choice about this. We have to do what we can do each in our own uh, space, our own environment, our own way. And we have to do it as purposefully as we possibly can. That's what makes me hopeful is that more and more people will understand the need for action of that kind. Without action, hope is also self-indulgent. I mean, in the book, in, Hope in, um, Hope in Hell, I spend a lot of time looking at what I call the shiny optimists, the people who just think everything's going to be okay. Technology will sort it all out and we'll somehow manage to deal with all of these different crises and we don't have to transform the nature of our economy or the way we live together. I, I despair of those people because again, they're not looking at the world as it is. So I know that may sound like a sort of terminological nicety to distinguish between optimism and hope, but it's, it's actually quite important when you look at the ways in which we need to respond emotionally. Thank you, that's a, that's a really um, interesting answer. And I, I've heard a few people say as well that um, hope is something you, you make happen. You, you don't, you can't yeah. just rely on it as a sentiment. It will magically bring about change. You have to, hope comes from taking action, I guess. Exactly, exactly, yeah. Um, and also, you know, that I, I, from my point of view, I feel like, you know, there are there are times when I feel like this this is just really quite overwhelming, you know, the issues we face. But at the same time, we don't have a right to to give up and despair. It is not our, you know, we, we have no right to to, to give up on, on this issue um, and abandon future generations. So, um, I'd like to turn to to another question um, linked to to my background and, and my research. So uh, I've been involved in the, the looking at the psychology of, of climate change, how people um, understand it and, and perceive it, why people think the way they do about climate change and sustainability. Uh, and one of the things that, that troubles me most is that there seems to be a strange disconnection between the fact that most people do now recognise we're heading into a very frightening place at the urgency of this issue. So in our research, we find most people do think of climate change as, as urgent and are concerned about it. But at the same time, life carries on for the most part, um, as if that wasn't the case. Um, and, and likewise, that the policy response around the world still seems woefully inadequate. And I, I'd just like to ask your thoughts on why are we in that situation? And how can we for want of a better phrase, wake up in time as, as individuals, as citizens, as a society, to, to, to do things differently. Yeah. So I'm interested in this, Stuart, and I just wanted to wanted to quiz you a bit on whether your findings are that clear, because I don't know actually whether that many people really do understand how critical a challenge this is, particularly the, the climate change end of it, because that's the one that 
we need to focus on here. I, I'm not sure about that. I think, I think the majority of people know that it's something in our lives now that we're going to have to deal with. They know it's getting more serious and therefore, yeah, a little bit more worried about it than they might have been last year. But as in the biggest single threat to the future of life on Earth, including the continuation of human civilization, poof, I don't know, does your survey data tell us that we've got large numbers of people now understanding just how serious this is? Yeah, I, I think there is a difference between how public awareness has changed, especially in, in the, most, the, the most recent years, the last few years. I think there has been a, a genuine measurable uptick in, in the yeah. extent to which people get this. But I would, I would certainly acknowledge that there's a big uh, a big gap still to go uh, in terms of recognizing i think how fundamental this this question is to to as you say our, our society our our way of life the sorts of things you you talked about at, at the start and and i wonder maybe i could sort of turn this back um to you i, I wonder the extent to which that is a, a product of the the way that climate change and other environmental issues have been thought of as you know, they, they are sort of somehow separate. There is the environment. You're someone who's concerned about the environment, uh, and that's separate to, to jobs and mm. health and well-being and, and so on. Do you think that's part of the issue there? Yeah, I think there has been a, a tendency for people to pigeonhole things into a sort of environmental uh, box and, and, and hope that'll be sorted out by environmentalists or ministers with a brief for the environment. And of course, we know that this is just not the case now. I think the one area where we've seen this in a way that most directly affects people is on health issues. Because I do think people now recognize that the way we live and the way we travel around, the way we eat, the way we take exercise, um, our quality of life, how we think about mental health, all of these things, um, is an absolutely critical, it's a precondition of anybody's quality of life. And the convergence between environmental issues and health issues now is enormously strong. And I think a very large number of people now recognize that these two overlapping areas are absolutely critical. You can also see that in terms of urban planning, policy decisions that are taken about the, the state of our towns and cities and how we need to shape things so that people can lead healthier, more environment-friendly lives. Access to the, the green environment, for instance, we now know is a critical determinant of people's health. If you can spend more time in nature, even out in your local park, as it were, that we know has a marked impact on people's physiological and mental health. So we're beginning to see more of a convergence around that. And for me, that's important because, because we thought about climate change as an environmental issue, not enough people recognize that actually this is, a, this is an issue about the economy, about society, about the future of humankind on this planet. So we've lost some, I think we lost some urgency because of that. And I think on a kind of everyday basis, those, those issues help to um, make, this, make this issue sort of more real yeah. and more part of, of people's lives. And, and maybe one reason to be hopeful shall we say or at least one uh, one way in which it is important to, to focus on the, the links between everyday life and this bigger 
larger topic of climate change is on things like um, health through the over, overlapping issues of air pollution, for example, you know, if we, if yeah. we change the way we travel, that's good for how, you know, it's good for our health, how we breathe. It's also good for emissions, also um, with food, eating differently, farming differently, and, and so on. Those things, those things matter. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I wanted to turn to um, uh, the, the part that people um, themselves might play um, in, in uh, taking this uh, making this transition happen. So I, I, as has been mentioned, I work in a research centre called the Centre for Climate Change and Social Transformation. So the name of, of that centre itself acknowledges that we, we need a, a transformation of some sort. Um, and, and one of the things, as, as Karen said, um, we're most interested in is, is how citizens, so people in general, you, yeah. me, everyone on this seminar and, and beyond can help shape um, a better future. Um, and we strongly believe that um, people aren't powerless, that we can find ways to tackle the problems we face. I'd like to ask what part do you think that um, all of us play? What, what things could we, should we do to, to help transform society in the coming years? Yes, indeed. Well, we would have to give up on this whole agenda, Stuart, if there wasn't room for personal responsibility and personal agency. Um, I'm, I'm very clear in my own mind about this. I, I don't believe that the personal side of it is all that is required to bring about the changes that are needed. I've been through too many spasms of excitement about green consumerism or people learning to live more responsibly on this planet. All of that is critically important, but it is not sufficient to bring about the kind of transformation we need. But having said that, we know that we have it in our power to do much more than we tend to do as a sort of default position and one thing I think people are more and more focused on is on how people use their income their money I've been very struck lately by watching the opportunities now for people to think completely differently about personal savings about pension plans about any investments they might have about how they use some of their money if they can to support other organizations through donations and so on. The responsibility we have as citizens to manage our own finances in a responsible way is critical. So I could ask a really nasty question today, Stuart, but I'll ask it in a nice way. What percentage of people on this call, however many there may be, have actively organized their own savings portfolio their own pensions and whatever else they might have, ISAs or whatever, to guarantee that none of their money is going into those companies that are accelerating all of the problems we face today. What, what, what would your hunch be about the percentage of people who got on top of that challenge completely? My hunch. Oh gosh, I'm. I cannot see our uh, wonderful audience, so I can't answer. But I would. I, I think you're leading towards a small number, aren't you? And, and I guess it's it that in sense of how we personally invest and look after our money is is probably general not really on our radars as something that we can do to tackle this issue. But why not? Because it's ridiculous. You know, we are in a position to do that. But almost by definition, people on a call like this will have some disposable 
will have choices to make as to how they invest their money in that regard. And it's always slightly amazed me that people somehow think that's in a, <clears throat> a different category of personal responsibility from things we need to do about how we travel, what we eat, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm, I'm asking the sharp and difficult question now with the hope that maybe those who haven't yet thought about that will go away and think about it. And by the way, don't despair about the fact you're going to be less well off because for all of those smart Alex, people like me who did make those choices many many years ago i can tell you our pensions and our isis have performed much much better particularly over the last six or seven years than completely conventional financial products which basically have been pathetically underperforming so get on the overperforming bandwagon while you still can <laughs> There's an important message, the, the most important message from the seminar, get, get on the overperforming bandwagon, I think, yeah, change your investment. I mean, I think you've touched on something there that's, that's important. And one, one, I guess, frustration I experience as someone who does have a background in psychology and, and how people, individuals behave and, and think and all of this is that once the sort of conversation starts about the role that we, we might have as, as, let's say, individuals, Often there is a lot of assumptions there about that we're just consumers, shall we say. And yeah. I think one thing that we're very keen to emphasize in the cast center is that we're not just consumers. That might matter. You know, what you what you buy does matter, I think, for, for your carbon footprint. But that also we, we have other roles. We're members of communities, families, workplaces and and voters. You know, um, so I, I wondered, you know, what there are many people, many of us, I think, who are, um, you know, passionately concerned about this issue but but probably feel a bit powerless at times and also I I worry a bit to be honest about the idea that all of this somehow has to happen done by other people by policy makers by politicians they'll if they can sort out the you know the economy and the structure of towns and all of this you know but surely there's there's more we can do to push that to happen in the first place indeed yeah um, it, I mean, we, active citizenship is a precondition of being properly engaged in this entire process. It's interesting, actually, Stuart. So, as you know, Forum for the Future, um, my organization, we spend a lot of time working with big companies. And it's one of the things we've done over the last 25 years. But increasingly, one of the things we have to point out to them is if you want to be a successful company when it comes to sustainability you've got to stop thinking about your customers as consumers you've you've got to take into account that the people you're selling your goods and services to are citizens they're not just consuming your products as it were they are citizens in their own right and your dialogue with them the way in which you reach them needs to take into account more than their purchasing power more than the way they dispose of their income and for me, that becomes really an important part of this now, because everything that we do as consumers is important, but to a certain extent, it's only a fraction of what we need to do as citizens. And I've always been very clear about the need for active involvement in politics. It's not everybody's cup of tea. Some people seem to find any engagement in politics pretty off-putting and don't really want to go there. But we can't do this without being active participants in our political systems, our 
serving democracy, as it were, and doing whatever we can in that small way to make sure that democracy is responding adequately to the growing demands to do things differently. We just got to do that. Um, and as a member of the Green Party now since 1974, as you can imagine, I spent quite a lot of time thinking, when is this damn political system ever going to wake up and reflect the interests and the needs and the passions of more people than those who just belong to the Labour Party and the Conservative Party? And that gets you into quite a lot of anguished concern about electoral systems and how to make democracy work better for people and how to bring the interests of future generations into all of those political decisions. But it, we've got to be there. We've got to do all that stuff. Thank you. Yeah, yeah I, I totally agree with, with all of that. Um, I mean, you mentioned future generations there uh, and the, the political aspects of this. Um, from reading your, your, your book, Hope in Hell, uh, and some of your other work, it, I, I've picked up on the fact, uh, and I, you've talked about this as well today, that you're very alert to the justice implications of the, the climate emergency. So that this is a problem that's inherently one where richer people and places cause problems for those who've contributed least, um, that young people are growing up into a world that's been left in a mess by those that went before them. Um, and I should acknowledge as well that, you know, here we are two um, comfortably off white men, you know, you've, we've talked about investment portfolios, not everybody have, has those, but th this, this is a problem that's run through with profound injustice. So how do you think we can take action on the climate emergency in ways that put justice at the heart of the, the solutions that we need? Well, even making sure that everything we do puts justice at the heart of that is critically important. And I, I suppose if I'm being critical about this, there have been many, many times where environmentalists and climate change campaigners historically weren't focused on the needs of the less well-off in society, took no account of historical injustices were indifferent to the fact that climate change impacts disproportionately on poorer people and more disadvantaged communities in all around the world. And there was a sense that the climate agenda wasn't a justice-based agenda. It was quite a technocratic science-based agenda where all we had to do was to sort out the technologies to reduce the emissions of greenhouse gases. And for me, that's always been unacceptable and in many instances reprehensible because the environment movement has at times in its history not reflected that justice foundation, the importance of putting justice at the heart of that. And for me, one of the most critical things going on with young people's engagement now, hugely significant engagement in the climate change movement is they don't see the world like that. For them, doing something about climate change is about climate justice. It's not just about thinking of new technology or whatever else it might be. It's about righting some of the wrongs in the economy. It's about thinking about what's gonna to happen to people in, in Bangladesh or in Indonesia, just as much as thinking about what's gonna to happen to people in Wales or America, whatever it might be. And it comes more naturally to young people involved in this movement. And it's refreshing when young people call us out for a failure to address these justice um, issues. And for me, that's been an important corrective in the system. If you're a big NGO, environmental NGO these days, you don't 
you don't leave out the justice bit. You know you've got to sort that out now because young people will give you a very hard time if you don't. Yes, good point. I mean, I think um, so. So, would you say it's it's fair to say then that uh, the environmental movement, shall we say, in general terms, is catching up and and is recognising this as a as a fundamental point yeah. now? Or, yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, I'm particularly interested in what's happening in America, and it's a bit on the other side of the pond, a bit far away from us now. But environmental, the environmental justice movement has always been a much bigger part of how this is seen in the USA. And just watching how the Biden-Harris administration now is bringing forward its climate measures, the, the actions it's taking around climate change, very, very strong focus on climate justice, on making sure that every investment the government makes now in a low carbon economy disproportionately helps the interests and the needs of less well-off communities, particularly those communities disadvantaged by decades of environmental pollution and damage and the exposure to all of those um, toxic legacies, which so many hundreds, well, certainly millions of people in the USA are still very affected by. And somehow that's a, a very bright, thing going on in the USA at the moment. It really gives me a great deal of hope. And we can learn from that here in, in, the, in the UK in particular. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I, I wanted to, uh, I'm going to hand back over to um, Karen in a minute, who has some questions from the audience. But I, I had to, one last thing I wanted to ask you about. Um, so you've, you've been at the centre of, of many campaigns over the years, and, and you've talked about working with, with business. You've been a director of um, some large organisations, advisor to Prince Charles, I think, and government ministers. You've got a, Karen mentioned you've got a CBE, so that, that's a um, you know, fairly establishment uh, badge. So, said, so in many ways, you've been an insider trying to work with government, business, etc. But one of the, the most um, striking conclusions of your uh, recent book, Hope in Hell, I've got a copy here, Oh, you can't really see it, but there it is. Um, and I find it found it very surprising, actually, um, myself and how forthright you were about this, is that mass civil disobedience, as you put it, is needed to bring about the level of action required to transform society. So that sort of takes uh, citizen responsibility to another level, doesn't it? And why do you think we need mass civil disobedience? Uh, and what would that look like for people who are not activists? And, and how would you envisage that unfolding? I'm a realist, first and foremost, Stuart. And for me, if I look at the state of the world today, and I look at the gap between what the science is now telling us about the state of the world and the policy responses to that, if I just think about that gap, I cannot see what's going to happen in our political systems, which will narrow it fast enough to sort out these massive pressures. So for me, then you ask the question, okay, if our current ways of working through political systems, engagement, lobbying, voting, et cetera, et cetera, if that isn't sufficient to narrow that gap fast enough, what extra element do we need in the mix? And I suppose for that, I go back to the first 20 years of my life as a green campaigner, which was more, of course, in the Green Party, in Friends of the Earth, much more involved in radical campaigning, in direct action, and I'm kind of thinking to myself, all of that, the need for that hasn't gone away. Extinction Rebellion and young people's climate actions through 2019 reminded us that we need 
a much more forceful way of persuading our politicians to do more than they might otherwise be inclined to do. And we can all help with that. And you can certainly help with young people. Don't forget every time a young person joins a strike, goes on strike for the climate on Fridays, whatever it might be, they, to a, a small but significant extent, are saying the laws of this land are not delivering what we need by way of justice to the next generation. So we are going to, in a small way, but significant way, demonstrate our concern and anger about that by choosing to absent ourselves from school. That is a small civil disobedience. And if young people can do it, what the hell does that say to us, who essentially are people who've left them in the position where they feel they have no choice but to make that small act of civil disobedience? So if you think about it morally, ethically, in those terms, there's a lot that we have to do and support now to make a better job of it in the next decade than we've made in the last five decades. Okay, thank you. So um, an essential part of um, pushing for the necessary um, political response, which is still lacking. Thank you very much, uh, Jonathan. I'll, I'll hand you. over to... <laughs> it's great to talk. I, I could talk all day, um, but um, we, we only have an hour, so I'll hand back uh, to Karen. Thanks, Stuart, and thanks, Jonathan. I could listen all day as well. So um, let's get on to some questions now. And they have been, um, you know, coming in quite thick and fast. I think one of the first questions I'd like to put to you, which uh, was submitted before um, the, the webinar started, was does the UK government, um, so recognising that in Wales we're, we're a part of a devolved administration, so would you say, Jonathan, that the UK government needs to put sustainability advice on a statutory footing? Um, you know, Wales is experienced, but with teeth, so you know, you're aware of the Wellbeing Future Generations Act and so on here in Wales, which did cause, did um, prompt a real change in people's, um, you know, attitudes. So, so what are your thoughts on that for the Westminster government? Yeah, it is a really important point. And the inspiring example of the Future of Wellbeing Act, which matters a, an awful lot in the governance of the UK as a whole, and has been taken up, as you know, internationally by many, many other countries who've been very inspired by that. Um, it does tell us something about how we need to try and bring these interests into the heart of government systems um, more effectively than we've been able to do up until now. The one example we have, of course, is the Climate Change Act and the Committee on Climate Change, which has statutory responsibilities and government has statutory obligations laid upon it by that act and by the committee to change policy, climate change policy, so that it accords with the recommendations of the committee. And I look on this and I'm not at all cynical about this. Actually, it's a remarkable process. And we heard it reflected recently in Boris Johnson's decision to accept the committee's recommendation for a 78% reduction in greenhouse gases by 2035. Uh, you know, it's an easy thing to say. But equally, the Act has teeth. If governments can't deliver on this, then there are mechanisms in the Act to make it more effective than it would otherwise be. So for me, bringing more into the, into the legislated, the statutory part of what governments do is going to be um, absolutely critical. And I think that we're going to see more of this because actually voters now know that governments can all too easily disregard what they say 
unless it's kind of locked in law. Interesting rumors that the government's going to do the same on biodiversity now, that yeah. they're going to put into statute a commitment around undoing some of the damage to our natural systems, get on with this target they've got for planting trees and put it in law so that all future ministers will be bound in law to deliver against those targets. I, I'll wait and see whether that's going to actually happen. But it does give us reason for hope, doesn't it, Jonathan? Yeah, and, build, and building on that, there's another question in about the, um, you know, could you say more perhaps about the priority policies that need to be put in place to cut, tackle climate change? So, you know, if there's a hierarchy of policies, which would you put at the top? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm struck by the, the contrast between what government has done in the, in the world of transport and I imagine that Stuart and colleagues in CAST are really focused on this now because by virtue of saying that after 2030 no car manufacturer will be able to sell a petrol or diesel vehicle it's kind of changed the the rules of the game uh, influential report out today saying the government set a target but doesn't have a plan for getting there well that's a classic of course because it's easy to set targets it's a damn sight harder to find a roadmap to get to achieving that target but Changing that target has had a galvanizing effect on the story about the future of the internal combustion engine, et cetera, et cetera. So for me, that's a very noticeable example where government was decisive, decided that something extra needed to be done and made an intervention that has now, as it were, had that impact. In many other areas, they're completely useless when it comes to setting a similar kind of process in train. And I need hardly mention the most chronic and dreadful example is what to do about the built environment and what to do about existing housing stock with just one chronic failure after another in terms of actually doing something about our appalling housing quality in the UK, simultaneously addressing fuel poverty and so on and so forth. And the government's response to all of that is, uh, but well, if you can have such a thing, it's an ongoing fiasco, frankly. Um, so the contrast is, is interesting, isn't it? Governments can do it if they want to, but more often than not, they choose not to somehow. Yeah, choose not to or persuaded not to, who knows? But I think or you're right about the... Uh... Yeah, the electric cars. I mean, you know, I cannot, I, I'm an engineer and I'm, I, I have an interest in the automotive sector and I cannot keep up with the amount of new electric cars that are being developed. It's, it's fascinating and wonderful. And, you know, and the battery challenge that was put in place because batteries being the problem there, you know, yeah. was really inspiring for a lot of, um, you know, younger engineers to work on that. So that's, that's been a great, I, I agree, a great success story. Let's hope that we get there by the target time. Um, so, so a question that builds actually on, on government responsibility. Somebody's also asked um, what your thoughts are on the specific roles of, of local authorities in societal transformation. It is very important. I wish it was more important, but, but it's not as important as it should be because central government makes sure that local government doesn't have the powers and the budgets that it needs to do what it could be doing. And I'm very interested at the moment in terms of, it, this is about England rather than Wales for this particular answer, but I'm interested in the way that the metro mayors, the mayors of our big cities and regions are beginning to see that if you're gonna address all of these different issues, the, what I call the interlocking issues of climate biodiversity, injustice, equality, and so on, it's got to be done at that level. It's got to be done at the city level and the city region level. And those 
new developments in our big cities. And I'm sure the same is the case in, in Wales. For me, says we're going to see, we're going to need to see a balance, a rebalancing of the relationships between central government and our regions. Now, Wales has got a separate set of governance opportunities in that regard. It is in a position to do things differently from how it's done in England, Scotland or Northern Ireland. So the role of local government is absolutely critical. We all know that, but it's not been given the powers or the budgets to do it properly. Yeah, thank you. So, so now, um, can I talk about food, please? <laughs> so <laughs> how much is our diet contributing to climate change and, and what can we do about it individually and I guess, you know, on, on a collective level? Well, I'm sure that Stuart will have a lot to sort of contribute to this through the work of CAST because it is one of those great, great big issues. Um, a lot of discussion at the moment about the links between diet, ill health, obesity, diabetes, and all of these things bubbling up all over the place at the moment. And people recognizing now that if we're gonna get on top of many of these things, we've got to think very differently about people's diets. Uh, the UK sadly has the highest percentage of, of, of processed food in people's diets of any European country, hyper-processed food. And we need to address these dietary issues head on. So for me, I'm a little bit worried when government says we don't want to intervene too much in these areas because we're gonna to have to intervene in these areas, particularly on meat consumption. Sorry to go straight to the heart of this. We do need more people to eat less meat in their diets, to find different ways of deriving the protein and the other nutritional benefits they might get from meat and to have a much better uh, balance in, the, in, the, in their diets um, in future. But people are very sensitive about this and it's, it's a tricky thing for politicians to get right. They kind of blow hot and cold on this stuff. There was a really funny piece on radio this morning that said every single Tory prime minister that, that takes up the reins starts by saying, we're not going to be the nanny state. We're not going to touch people's right to consume whatever they want to consume or kill themselves in whatever way they want to kill themselves. We're not going to do that because we're the Conservatives and we don't do nanny state politics, even though most of them, of course, are brought up by nannies. And then, of course, once they've been two or three years in office, hey, presto, they think, oh, God, we're going to have to do something about this now. And then they begin to think about it differently. And so it's, it's a weird mismatch that goes on there. Yeah, I agree. Stuart, did you want to come in on, on the food issue, offer any, any more insights on this? Yeah, well, well, first of all, I think I'd agree. We, we, we simply can't avoid the fact that some, uh, some diets, some foods contribute more to climate change. I mean, there is a lot of complexity under the surface, but, uh, you know, red meat and dairy are repeatedly shown in study after study to um, be uh, both less healthy and and worse for for the climate and so we, we do need to um, uh, rethink about that I, I also agree some of our car center researchers found to my surprise actually people are really very sensitive about this I mean in, in our research we found that um, people are more willing to cut down on flying and see airports not expanding than they are to change their diets this is a very sort of personal sensitive issue um, but the, but there's no avoiding it I don't think and, and in terms of um, the government being a nanny state or whatever you want to uh, call it you know there, there are areas where society has changed the government has um, taken taken action and, and has brought about 
healthier change. If you take smoking, for example, I mean, this has been a combination of policies and laws and shifting social norms and so on. 20, 30 years ago, you could sit in a restaurant and smoke your head off and, and you just can't now. Nobody would want to go back to that. So I think we need to find ways to, to look at, at parallel um, for, for our diets too. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think, you know, shifting social norms is really important because, you know, the more um, well, I remember when I was a student and, and, and you know, I used to say, you know, I'm a vegetarian. Um, people used to call me a tree hugger and, you know, all sorts of things. Um, and, and now the, the norm is, you know, it's just more of a norm, isn't it? With a lot of restaurants I go into now having, uh, you know, in the past, there was just one dish for the vegetarian amongst you. Now it seems to be in most res restaurants because of props consumer demand or so on you know there's often far more um yeah. normalized vegetarian food do you want to come in on that jonathan i think that's right and it makes a difference because what we know is you need a number of things to make this societal shift happen one is affordability so there's no good just having the alternatives costing much much more than standard um, dietary inputs at the moment and secondly, choice, and people need to feel that they've got a choice of these things. So suddenly the explosion in plant-based alternatives um, in our diets is making a huge difference. And for young people in particular, this is enormously important because it's no longer, for them, it's much, much easier now to make some of the choices that might once have been very difficult for our generation, sorry, my generation, wouldn't want to include you in anything quite as old as me, but it's um, it it just wasn't the easiest thing in the world to do. For young people today, it's getting easier and they seem to care more about it. Animal welfare is a very big issue for a very large number of young people and that plays into the choices that they make. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, and thank you, Stuart, as well, for sort of highlighting that meat production and dairy production as well, you know, are key issues here. Um, I, I want to turn to the question of investments. You talked about investments. and I, I guess this is a comment, not a question. Somebody's commenting that, you know, you asked about people's um, investment funds being switched to ethical investments. But um, somebody's asked me to restate this as a question about people on the call who we assume many of whom will be in universities and, and in the USS pension scheme and just noting that there is a there is a choice in the um, DC part of that to move to the ethical funds and I think that's a really easy thing to do and, and, and just a comment about us as a university we do have an ethical um, investment um, policy um, obviously and this has covered this we've had this for many years and this has covered um, tobacco it's covered armaments it's covered um, oil and gas and you're absolutely right Jonathan our investment fund managers who report regularly on this um, have told us that it's outperforming every other um, investment fund. <laughs> So, you know, hooray. Yeah. Um, so I've got one more question here, which is, um, what are your feelings about a negative, about negative emission technologies and carbon capture and storage? So this is the techie questions here. Right. This is a big one. Um, yeah. And this becomes all the more important because obviously now the, the big, big idea, the buzz idea now is what is called net zero. So when you hear governments committing to become a net zero country or net zero carbon emission country or companies committing to this or local authorities or universities 
When's your net zero target, Karen? What's what's your uh, story? It's 2030 for scopes one and two. Scope three is a little more difficult. And we're trying to work out how to measure that properly now because, of course, procurement, you know, everything we procure has an ongoing, you know, Indeed um, it does. Yeah. scope three. Yeah, just checking. wanted to make sure I wasn't shedding on a sensitive place here. Um, Not at all. Good. But when people commit to net zero, what they what is in is in play there is that you have to minimize to the maximum extent your own emissions of greenhouse gases and you have to drive that as close to zero as you possibly can that's the sort of useful shorthand way of looking at it you need to get as close to zero as you possibly can but there will be some residual emissions particularly in your scope three as you've just said karen in the relationships you have with your business partners with your um, customers whatever it might be and what we need to do then is to balance off those residual emissions with removals, with withdrawals of CO2 from the atmosphere. And that's the trick in net zero. So whatever your residual emissions might be at your target date, you, it is going to become uh, necessary then to balance those continuing emissions with withdrawals from the existing greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. And of course, this is controversial because a lot of people don't like offsets very much. I'm not sure why. If you do offsets well, offsets are wonderful. Forum for the Future has done offsets for the last 25 years, and we feel very proud of the beneficial impact that we've had through doing our offsets well. I'm a non-executive director of a company that's been carbon neutral in the construction sector for the last 10 years, and we are really proud of our offsets because they bring benefits to people, social and economic benefits as well as carbon benefits. So you can do offsets really well if you choose to do it. But we are in future talking, of course, about something very much bigger than that. And you mentioned net emission technology or negative emission technologies, which means actually bringing billions of tons of CO2 back out of the atmosphere. And obviously that's a bigger challenge. And then you get into the difficult realms about geoengineering and what we're going to need to do through natural sequestration of carbon, what we're going to need to do through mechanical engineering sequestration of carbon, including carbon capture and storage. So this is going to shape the policy debate much more actively over the course of the next decade. You can absolutely count on that. And there will be many, many controversies to be dealt with during that time. I'm not a huge fan of carbon capture and storage, I have to say, engineering terms, clunky, energy intensive, expensive, only delivers somewhere between 60 and 90% of the emission reductions you need. We can do better than that. And hopefully we'll come up with the technologies that will allow us to do that. Yeah, that's really inspirational. Thank you for that. I've got one final question. Apologies to everybody whose questions I haven't been able to address, but, um, you know, we are short of time. But one final question, and it may be quite a hard question, actually, Jonathan, and probably Jonathan and Stuart might be able to comment, but are we going to reach 1.5 degrees or is two degrees the best we can aim for now? Staying below that average temperature increase of 1.5 degrees by the end of the century is looking less and less deliverable. We have to be honest, and there are more and more scientists who think that we may already have gone too far because of the amount of 
greenhouse gases, the warming we've already put into the atmosphere. I don't want to give up on that yet. And there are many scientists who don't want to give up on it because they say as soon as you start giving up on these targets, before you've got clear definitive evidence that we've still got a chance of doing it, the harder it gets. So for me, very close to 1.5 being impossible, but not quite there yet. Thank you, Jonathan. Stuart, have you got a final comment on that? Yeah, I, I would say the same. I mean, it, it was it, 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 1.5 was was challenging and and near impossible when when it at the time of Paris. I remember um, uh, when the Paris Agreement happened at the at the COP. There, a lot of climate scientists looking quite bewildered and saying, "Oh, is this really <laughs> achievable?" And you know, when you look at the emissions trajectories that would be needed to achieve that, it's it's pretty much vertical, falling off a, a cliff, and and we're clearly not going in that direction um but i also agree that we we shouldn't give up on on these things well while there is even a, a sliver of of hope or possibility and and if it's not 1.5 you know this it's an arbitrary number okay it's it's important yeah. the, the galvanizing effect but you know 1.573 would <laughs> would be good you know we we've got to just um do the most we can to to, to um every every fraction of a degree matters as people say so. yeah and that's yeah. that's a brilliant that's a brilliant point to finish on and I think that you know the, the the spirit of not giving up and having hope which brings us back to the beginning of our conversation is really important here because we might not hit 1.5 but if we're very you know we've got to get do work as hard as we can with urgency to get as close to it as possible don't we so so Jonathan thank you very much and thank you very much Stuart I found your balance of pragmatism and urgency hugely inspiring as well as your thoughts on hope over despair and the important difference between hope and optimism it was such a fascinating conversation and you know I was noting the audience numbers as we went through and we didn't get any drop-off which is normally we get a lot of drop-off so you know you you've held the audience for the whole hour so thank you for that thank you Jonathan for returning albeit virtually to Cardiff I hope we can um in, in you know inspire you to come back in in person Indeed. to the to the great little country of Wales yeah um and and thanks to everybody who joined us today Dioch we hope to see you again at a future Cardiff University event and more information about those events will be on our website um, so thank you very much thank you again Jonathan thank you Stuart and goodbye everybody